Okay, well, if you've got a Bible this morning, we're going to go ahead and jump in. We're in Genesis chapter 39, and um, Genesis chapter 39, we started a series last week called God is with me. If you weren't with us, I'll catch you up real quick uh, on the life of Joseph. And um, we said, you know, not Joseph, the earthly adopted father of Jesus, but Joseph, the great-grandson of Abraham, um, the grandson of Isaac, the son of Jacob or Israel. And his story is laid out for us in the book of Genesis in chapters 39 through 50. And it's an incredible story of trials and triumph, of temptation and victory, and, and just the ups and downs of life, and, and of God at work in someone's life. And I said last week, if he was to write an autobiography or a memoir, he might would have titled it, God is with me. Um, because that is the major theme or takeaway from his life that the Bible tells us, particularly in chapter nine, 39, we'll see this morning about four times, this idea that the Lord was with him. And then it says, it reveals it in other ways about how God blessed him and was working in his life and in and other people's lives. And so that's the takeaway, is that God was active and present in his life at work. And there's a lot, a lot of things that we can learn from Joseph as believers in Christ, who the Bible tells us God is with us in a unique and special way in the new covenant. Um, has actually given us his Holy Spirit. And, and, and we can live in light of the fact that God is with us. And there's a lot we can learn from Joseph about that. And so today we're going to learn that just because God was with Joseph did not mean he didn't face temptation to sin just like every other single person on the planet. Um, he was tempted. You know, I'm, I, the first memories I have of being introduced of the idea of temptation um, are from cartoons. And I remember I watched Looney Tune cartoons uh, when I was a kid, showing my age there. And, you know, you had Bugs Bunny and all those kind of guys running around. And they would have these little scenes where the cartoon character would have a little devil on one shoulder and a little angel on another shoulder whispering things in their ear, and he'd have to make a decision, right, to either do the bad thing or to do the right thing. And it was kind of this picture of temptation, of this battle that was going on. Now, that's not exactly how temptation works. There's not like a little devil on one shoulder and a little angel on another. But one thing those cartoons kind of had right is the devil always looked a lot like the character, and the angel always looked a lot like the particular character. And that does point us to one thing that is true, and that is temptation is about us and about an inward struggle we have between right and wrong uh, that we battle. And for the believer, it's the war between the new man and the flesh. But the believer has new resources to fight with in Christ. And if you do not know Jesus today as Lord and Savior, you're actually at a disadvantage when you fight temptation. So let's learn from Joseph how to better fight temptation and what that advantage is that believers have. So look with me at Genesis 39. We're going to make our way through the text, and then we'll look to apply it to our lives. So look with me, uh, starting in Genesis 39, verse 1. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord, and you'll notice that in all capital letters, that is the Hebrew name Yahweh, that is God's covenant name. The Lord, the covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God, was with Joseph. And he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. So let's pick up right there. Let's pause for a second. 
So here's what has happened since the last time we saw Joseph last week. Remember, he had been thrown into a pit by his brothers and sold into slavery. That was the option instead of murdering him. And so they, instead, they sold him, threw him into a pit as a captive. And then when a caravan came by, they sold him into slavery. And he ended up, his captors took him into Egypt where they sold him, we see, to a man named Potiphar, the captain of the guard of Pharaoh. This is a high-ranking official who had money, who had power. He's basically kind of overseeing the, the prisons and all that sort of stuff for Pharaoh. And really, the first time in the Bible, the idea of prison we're going to see is in this chapter. Uh, the first time we even see that idea uh, in the scriptures. And the key phrase of these first six verses is that the Lord was with Joseph. Back to our theme. And therefore, Joseph began to succeed in all that he did. And remember, he is a slave, and then now he's running Potiphar's household. All his employees, all his servants are under the charge of Joseph. He's managing the house. And because God was blessing Joseph, Potiphar is blessed too. Now, what does that remind you of? It should remind you of something if you're familiar with Genesis. God told Abraham, his great-grandfather, that all the nations would be blessed through Abraham, that his line would be the conduit of the blessing of God for the nations. And this is now being manifested in the life of Joseph. Potiphar, a Gentile, by the way, from Egypt, is being blessed due to his relationship with Joseph. And God is kind of showing how that blessing is following, and now it's kind of fallen on the life of Joseph. Because of Joseph's success... This brought about a unique situation, incredible trust. Potiphar had no concern, it says, except for anything but the food he ate. He was worry-free. He absolutely trusted Joseph with everything. He slept at ease at night. I mean, this guy was a slave, but God's hand was so on him, and he had such integrity that the, the, the Potiphar just had, had no concerns. Let's pick back up. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time, his master's wife, cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. Now, the writer tells us Joseph is a good-looking guy. You may recall his mother, Rachel, is described in a similar way. And, um, and, and so we see, I guess, he got her genes, and he's a good-looking guy as well. And Potiphar's wife takes notice, and it says she cast her eyes on him. And that's the Bible's way of telling you that she began to lust after him, to look at him in a way that she wasn't supposed to look at another man. And then... She's very blatant in her temptation and bold in her request, right? Um, I mean, the recorder here is just very clear to us in how she presents it. And Joseph is just as clear in his response, you might notice. He's very clear. This is not going to happen. And Joseph takes the trust of his master and his relationship with the Lord we see very seriously. She continues to tempt him. He continues to say no, verse 11. But one day when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house. She caught him by his garment, saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, see, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. 
And she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. Now notice, so far Joseph's story in chapter 37 and chapter 39 revolve around clothes. You might pick up on that. Garments. He had a coat of many colors that was a sign of what? His father's love for him that his brothers took and used as a way to lie about him and say he was dead even though he was alive. And now he has a garment that he leaves behind that is actually a sign of his purity, right, and of his integrity that this lady is now going to use and take and lie and in turn use it as a sign, use it as a way to, to use it as a way to lie and say he, he was forcing himself upon her and use it as a way to bring about injustice in his life. One scholar pointed out the word play in this chapter. Just as Potiphar left all he had in Joseph's charge and had no worries, Joseph leaves his garment when tempted by Potiphar's wife, showing that he was, in fact, trustworthy. Verse 19. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So here we have Joseph, wrongly accused, locked in prison, but the Lord is with him and what? Shows him his steadfast love, the scriptures say. Shows his steadfast love to him. God's love was faithful to Joseph even when things went wrong, even when others betrayed him and lied about him, even when it seemed like his life was falling apart. There is God's steadfast love. And what you're seeing here is Joseph's faithfulness that will be outlined in Genesis 37 through 50 is a product of God's faithfulness. That's why God's the real hero of the story. Joseph is faithful to God because God was first faithful to Joseph. And this chapter is actually following Genesis 38 that we skipped because Joseph's not mentioned in that chapter. But in Genesis 38, it's set up, it's kind of like a foil, it's kind of a comparison between Joseph and Judah. In Genesis 38, you've got the story of Judah and Tamar, and it's a story of, story of sexual indiscretion and sin on the part of Judah. Okay, So in, in chapter 39, you've got a woman doing the tempting, and in, jap, in chapter, in chapter and, and a man being the righteous one. In chapter 38, the Bible's no respecter of this, uh, of persons in this manner. In chapter 38, you've got a man who is acting very sinfully and has um, commits an act of immorality with his daughter-in-law and acts unjustly in, in many ways. And what the Bible is showing us here, Judah, who represents the brothers, unjust. Joseph, just, right? It's showing us that comparison. And so when you get to chapter 39, Joseph's uh, righteous actions are kind of on display as God is with him and working in his life. And as you step back and look at this, this part of Joseph's life in the first few chapters, in chapter 39, you see that Things in this chapter are bookended by that phrase, the Lord was with Joseph. It starts in the first five verses, the Lord was with Joseph. It ends with the Lord was with Joseph, even when he's in prison, or even when he's locked up. And in the middle of all this, you see all this success. He has struggles, and he succeeds. You see God at work in when he's a slave and when he's a prisoner because the Lord was with him. But in the middle of all that, he's tempted. He's lied about. He's locked up. And God's being with his people doesn't mean that we don't face 
temptation and trials. It doesn't mean we don't have to go to spiritual war every day just like Joseph did. And notice, Joseph's big temptation comes when his life is on the upswing. Things are good. Things are going well. Now, sometimes we're tempted when we're in the valley and things are going bad and we feel sorry for ourselves and we're just looking for a mental break from things and people get tempted in those ways. But sometimes it's when things are going great. It's after the promotion, right? And so even though he's in hard times, those hard times are swinging up and all of a sudden, that's, he's, man, he's ruling the house and now all of a sudden temptation strikes. And sometimes great temptation comes when you get the promotion, fall in love, whatever the course may be. Blessing doesn't immune us from temptation. And Joseph's success against temptation is rooted in the same things his other success was, and that was that the Lord was with him. And the reason I believe he could resist the temptation he faced day after day, the reason he could cut and run when confronted with it face to face was because God's hand was upon him. It is God who has given him success, even in temptation. Now, we're prone to think when we succeed, it's about us whether it's in a trial or in doing our job well or whether it's uh, victory over temptation. We tend to kind of stick our chest out a little bit and go, man, I did it, I did it. And it's kind of like when you take a kid and they, you know, like one of my kids were small, and they're like, I want to touch the ceiling, and you pick them up, and you let them touch the ceiling, and they're like, I touched the ceiling, right? I made the fan go around, and you pick them up on a little basketball goal, and they put it through the hoop, and they're like, I dunked the basketball, and you're like, eh. And that's kind of what it's like when we get all proud about what we've done. It's the Lord who is working. It's his faithfulness that allows us to be faithful. It's his hand at work in our lives. We succeed by his hand. And as believers in Christ, we have God's presence with us. If you're a believer in Jesus today, if you've repented of your sin, put your faith in Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have his presence with you. And he's always working for our good, for his people's good, and for his glory. And we need to fight temptation like he is with us. We fight from that position just as Joseph was able to. And here are five ways we can do that, okay? Just five practical things that help us, aid us in temptation as we fight temptation like God is with us. Five things we learn from Joseph's life. Number one, we need to cultivate a heart that treasures God, okay? Five ways we can fight temptation like God is with us. Number one, cultivate a heart that treasures God. Over and over again, we read the Lord was with him and made him prosper. We see God's heart for Joseph in these chapters. But what about Joseph's heart towards God? Well, that's revealed in verse 9 of chapter 37. When confronted at first by Potiphar's wife, Joseph's response is rooted in a fear of and respect for God. He says, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? See, sin was for Joseph against God, and that was a really big deal to Joseph. God was not only with Joseph, God had apparently formed in Joseph a heart that treasured and loved God and feared God. He couldn't bear to think of doing something so heinous, something so wicked in the eyes of the God he loved and treasured. Reminds me of David in Psalm 51. In Psalm 51, King David is confessing and repenting of his sin that he committed. And he says in verse 4 of Psalm 51, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. See, David is referred to in the Old Testament as a man after after what? God's own heart. He loved God. And when he sinned, what broke his heart the most was that he had offended the God he loved. And at the same time, we see in Joseph that a heart that treasures and loves God is a great defense against temptation in the first place to help us not to commit sin to begin with. Now, we're going to sin. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna mess up from time to time when, when we're tempted. But we can sin less 
and we can sin less and less and less and less. That's, we can't become sinless, not until glory, not until heaven, not until we meet Jesus face to face, but, but we can sin less. That's called spiritual growth. We can grow in godliness, we can, but we've got to cultivate a heart that treasures God. We need to love God to the point that sin becomes less appealing to us. About this particular temptation that Joseph faced, one author noted that Joseph saw that God was better than sex. See, our heart, that, our heart loves God, right? When you, when you become a believer in Christ, he gives you a heart that loves him. But then we, we kind of steward that heart, and we, and, we're, and, we, and we seek God, and we seek to mature in our faith, and the Holy Spirit continues to work on us, and we grow to love him more, and we grow to love him more and more and more. And a heart that loves God can see that God is better than whatever sin has to offer. So we have to cultivate our heart so that we love God and treasure God more and more so that we see sin as uglier and uglier and uglier. See, God has changed our hearts, but we've got to continue to pursue Christ, and he will continue to change our hearts. Our hearts aren't perfected yet. They can still be drawn towards sin, as we well know. So we cultivate a heart that treasures God by spending time in his word, spending time in prayer, spending time with the people of God, confessing our sins, thinking often of Christ and what he's done for us, confessing our sins when we commit sin, not, not harboring sin. Blessed is he who does not conceal his sins, right? The one who, who uncovers his sins, who confesses his sins, Proverbs tells us, is the one who will find mercy. Listen, see, I love my wife, and we love each other, and we're in a relationship together. But at the same time, we, we date, we go on dates, we spend time with one another, we talk to one another. Those are things you do to cultivate, right, your marriage. Whatever those things are, through conversation and through time with one another and all those sort of things. And in the same way, even though you love the Lord and you know the Lord and you belong to the Lord, we have a responsibility to cultivate our heart and to guard our heart so that we grow in our relationship with the Lord and not allow ourselves to become distracted from him to something else. Cultivate a heart that treasures God. Number two, choose to see sin as wicked. Now, this is important. In verse 39, Joseph explained the ramification of what this sin would mean, how it would hurt his boss, how it would be an abuse of trust. He said, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? This great wickedness, he calls it. See, Joseph didn't sugarcoat this. He calls it, I mean, as strong a words as he could use, he condemns it. This is great wickedness. He didn't pretty it up. He didn't soften it. He didn't say, now listen, ma'am, I'm flattered. I mean, I really am. You're a beautiful woman, and any guy would be lucky to be with you. But I just love my job too much. I mean, I mean, you know, if you were single, you know, if I didn't work for your boss, you know, if, if it would have been a different time, if I would have met you before you met Potiphar, you know, he didn't say that garbage. He said, this is wickedness. This is wrong. Because he wasn't the only one that needed to know that. She needed to know that. He's not being ugly to her. He's not being rude to her. He's just letting sin be sin and not prettying it up and softening it. And condoning it in some way, he's not trying to dance around it. He's not trying to just dodge it. He's trying to get away from it. See, there's something in every human heart that wants to downplay and normalize sin. That's what we're prone to do. Everybody does this. Everybody does that. We downplay it. Well, it's not that bad. With kids, it's, well, he's just being a kid. This is what kids do. With teenagers, well, you know how teenagers are. Everybody does it. And then when you're an adult, well, you don't know my story and what I've been through. And this isn't really who I am. 
I'm usually better than this. This is just one area, one thing, one time. Or, or who hasn't struggled in this area? And sometimes we, we take and we, we abuse the word struggle. Right? We say we're struggling in an area. Where all we mean we're doing is we're giving in in an area. It's not a struggle if you're not warring against it. And we coddle it, we normalize it, we downplay it. In Genesis 4-7, the beginning of this book, God told Cain, one who would give in to his sin, that sin was crouching at the door and its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. In other words, sin is crouching at your door, Cain, and its desire is for you. He was envious of his brother. He was angry at his brother. He would ultimately give in and sin would jump out from behind that door and take him over and he would kill his brother. But Cain had a choice. Sin was crouching like a lion, ready to pounce on his prey, but he could take it seriously and war against it, or he could ignore it. He could fight it or be ruled by it. He could normalize it and downplay it, or he could go to war on it. He gave in. And when you downplay sin or normalize sin, you ultimately weaken your defense against sin, and you tell a lie to yourself when you call it anything other than great wickedness. So you can't win a war you don't acknowledge that you're, at, you're in. You can't fight a battle if you don't think it's worth fighting. And you can't catch a killer if you don't think the killer is the killer. And sin is a killer. This week I, I saw, come through some social media platform, this video. And, it was, uh, and some of you might have seen it. There was this toddler. And it was wrestling on the floor with a python. The family pet. And this large python was curled around this two-year-old, it looked to be. And they were just playing. And, and I was just like, what in the world is happening? This is like... What in the world's happening? I'm like, you're, you're, you're entrusting some, some ant, wild animal who at any moment could be hungry for lunch, and you're depending on its brain that's about the size of a quarter of a nickel to not decide to choke and kill your toddler. And if it decides to do that, there's nothing you can do about it. This looked crazy to me. And we're just as vulnerable to sin as said toddler just as exposed, just as weak on our own. And when we coddle it and when we refuse to name it and when we downplay it and normalize it, we're snuggling up next to a snake. And snakes bite and snakes kill. See, a heart that loves God will hate sin and will see sin as wicked and ugly. One of the best ways you can choose to regularly see sin as the wickedness it is is to cultivate that heart that loves God. Because the more you do that, the more beautiful you see God, the more ugly you will see sin. As a people who the Bible says God's presence is with us, and the same Bible says it is our sin that has separated us from our God in Isaiah, we should see sin as wicked. Because we value the presence of God, and we understand that we understand that it was sin that separated us from him in the first place that brought his judgment and wrath. It was sin that led to the point that Jesus went to the cross to to be punished for our sins. Sin is an ugly, wicked thing. There is no small sin. There is no little sin. See, sin is wicked. We have to choose to do that daily, to see sin for what it is. Number three, trust God to form your character. Trust God to form your character. In this story, Joseph's character is on full display. He had his perspective and his values, his integrity shaped by God. Like God was forming him. Look back at, in verse 8. It says, He refused, and he said to her, Behold, because of, me, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. He's put everything that he has in my charge. He's not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you're his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? See, his character's being revealed there. 
the way he viewed his neighbors and his relationships. He took his relationship with his master seriously. He had built trust. This was a big deal to him, the fact that he had this relationship. The fact that his wife, had, excuse me, that Potiphar had not kept anything from him but his wife. The fact that he had no concern for anything, that kind of trust was a big deal to him. He valued his neighbor. He valued Potiphar, who even though he was his owner in, in this sense, he was a neighbor, someone that Jesus would tell us later to love even your enemies. That trust was a big deal because Joseph valued the relationship he had because he valued his neighbor. And people with character formed by God do that. They value people and they value their neighbors and they value their boss and they value their relationship. They value trust and friendship. They think about what sin does to others, how it destroys trust. And Joseph was practicing loving his neighbor as himself. His love for God bled over into his love of the image bearers of God. His valuing of his relationship with of God bled over into a valuing of his relationship with his neighbor. And the fact that she was his wife, as Joseph says, mattered. You, his, his, he's kept me from you because you are his wife. He had withheld her from Joseph because she was, in fact, his wife in covenant relationship with him. Joseph valued marriage and obviously thought that she should value it too. And his character and integrity was being informed so by God, informed by God, so he was valuing what God values, and God values marriage. He values the marriage relationship. But his character is also revealed just in his personal responsibility. He says, everything's in my charge. He's not greater than I, this, than I am. How then can I do this? I, 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 and it's not in a selfish way. It's in a, I'm owning my position, my responsibility, the stakes. I get this. I get this is on me and that I get that God has placed me in a unique position and I have to be personally responsible. That's called character. That's called integrity. And personal responsibility is a character issue. Taking responsibility for our actions and what God entrusts us with, our jobs, our families, our finances, are about integrity and character, our relationships. We live in a culture where people many times want things handed to them and People avoid owning their responsibility and stuff. It's always somebody else's fault. It's all over our culture right now. You can see it with all the crazy stuff that's going on in the news. Everybody's got their finger pointed. Nobody wants to own responsibility for the wicked culture we've all helped create. It's a character issue. If you're going to be the type of person that can fight temptation, you need to trust God to form your character. You need to trust God to be the one who molds you and makes you into the person you become. See, Joseph was a man with a sin nature like anyone else, but it was God that was forming him, so his, his integrity was greater, his character was in greater than that of Judas in chapter 38, who was not living like someone who was submitting his life to the Lord. We recently had to have a bunch of trees trimmed around here on our property. I have to do that ever so often, right? Because these trees, and we've got 20-something of them here on the property, they, they grow and they go every which way. And, and, you know, if you just let them go, they just kind of get gnarly looking and ugly and they don't grow this way and that way. And they get out in the road and they scratch cars and all this kind of stuff happens and they just kind of look like your hair does when you get up in the morning. They just kind of... So every so often you have to pay somebody and they come in and they get the ladder and they get the bucket truck or whatever and they have to trim and they mold because they want the tree to grow and they want the limbs to do well, but they, they, it, there's a certain shape and there's a certain mode to that so that they, they continue to grow up and so that the tree provides shade and not scratches on cars and the, tree, the trees are helpful and not hurtful and all those sort of things, but someone has to shape them for that to happen. You just let them go unintended, it doesn't happen. And, and the character's the same way. Something is going to shape your character. 
Someone is going to shape my character, my integrity. And it can be in someone else's hands or we can entrust it into the Lord's hands. Who's shaping your character? Who's informing your values? Netflix? CNN? Fox News? Friends? Family members? Political parties? Cultural commentators? Who are you trusting to inform your character and the things you value? Because that's ultimately what will determine your character is what you value. Who are you trusting to do that? God wants to and will form the character of the believer as we read and obey his word, as we allow him to shape us through Christian community, being around other believers. His spirit will make his values our values. So we need to trust God and his word to be the shears in our life that cut away the things that don't need to be there to shape and form our character. And that is an aid for us in times of temptation. Number four, you need to fight temptation with strength and wisdom from God. Joseph had incredible strength in fighting this temptation. Why? God was with him and had formed his character and gave him a heart that loved him and hated sin. His strength came from God and he acted wisely as well. And wisdom, Proverbs tells us, is also given by God. Notice he had the strength and wisdom from God to fight sin this way. Three simple things that he did. Number one, he resisted. Okay? If you're a note taker, this is number four, letter A. Okay? <laughs> he resisted. Bible scholars have pointed out that to routinely and consistently stand up against temptation coming from his master's wife, he must have been empowered by God. Sometimes fighting temptation is about resisting. It's about simply standing your ground while relying on God's strength to enable you in Christ to resist with character formed by God and a heart that loves him and hates sin. You resist in God's strength. And believers today are under the new covenant, and we have a strength that comes from Christ himself. Hebrews 2.18 says, Because he himself, Jesus, has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. We live on another side of the cross from Joseph. And the Bible tells us because Jesus was su suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help you, believer in Christ, when you are tempted. He can give you strength that you don't have on your own. The same Jesus who was tempted and died for our sins while sinless himself is able to help us when we are tempted. And he has given us the Holy Spirit to empower us as we resist temptation. Don't fight temptation simply in your strength, simply by your power. Trust the Lord. But it's not just about resisting. He also chose to refrain. Part of that wisdom and strength was to refrain from certain things. Joseph knew that there were some things that if he were to, were actually going to resist the ultimate temptation, he was going to have to refrain from some things that could lead to giving in to that. In other words, he had some clear boundaries. He put up, some, he put up some, some tape around his life and said, I'm not crossing that line. Verse 10 of chapter 39 says that he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. She seems to be saying, just come lie down with me. Let's take a nap. Hoping that it would lead to more than a nap. Joseph says, you know what? We're not even going to hang out. Right? Because I, I know what you're up to, and I recognize that, and I see that. So we... I'm drawing a line. If you're going to be the type of person that's going to come after me in this way, I'm going to draw a clear red line and say I'm not crossing the line. We, we just, we're just not even going to be alone. And whether you are fighting sexual temptation or some other temptation, there is a refraining, there is boundaries that will be needed. And it requires wisdom from God to know where those boundaries need to be because different people sometimes have different boundaries. There are places and people and situations that you might should avoid. 
And some of these are common for everybody. Some of it's just common sense for anybody. But some of it is particular and unique to you because of your struggles and the way you're wired and the way Satan wants to come after you and the way your flesh is tempted. Now, a lot of the situations and circumstances people allow themselves in where they end up falling to temptation, they end up in those situations out of what I'll call a poverty of soul. They're looking for something, looking for attention, looking for a good time, looking for meaning, looking for excitement. But if God is with us, we shouldn't be so needy as not to be able to, to do without some things and to not constantly be looking for something, right? We don't have a poverty of soul in that sense. God is with me. I have the attention of God. I have meaning that comes from God. God's presence and activity in my life should make me more willing, not less willing, to draw boundaries where boundaries need to be drawn. See, some of this is common to all, and some are unique to you. I'm just saying know yourself. Maybe there's a place you can't go, something you can't do, people you can't be around, but, but others can, and not sin. Just know that about yourself. That's okay. If there's an area you are tempted, you need to assess that, even this morning. What do I need to refrain from? Where do I need boundaries? Is there a situation that I can avoid? A place that I can avoid? A person? Certain conversations because I'm tempted to gossip? Whatever it may be, whatever it is, you need to trust the Lord to give you wisdom to know where to refrain and to know that if you continue to fall into sin and you continue to do the same things over and again, you have a wisdom issue, which according to Proverbs means you have an issue with God because wisdom comes from Him and the godly walk in wisdom. So refrain. And then the other thing that he had strength and wisdom to do was to run. See, Joseph knew when it was time to just to go and to get out. He simply ran away. And sometimes that's all you can do. And with sexual temp temptation in particular, the New Testament's very clear. That's always the strategy is to just run away. 2 Timothy 2.22 says, flee youthful passions. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, flee from sexual immorality. What does flee mean? Not the little bug that gets on your dog. It means run away. Run away from it. Get, get as far away from it as you can. The, the, the whole approach that we are to take towards sexual temptation is to turn our back on it and to run as far the opposite direction as we can run. I remember as a kid, I went to this classmate's house who had lived on this farm, and he had all these cattle. And I remember we went out in the pasture, and I don't know, we were rednecks, right? And so we're just playing in a pasture. I don't remember what we were doing. We're just running around, right? And all of a sudden, we heard this noise, and we looked up. And I don't know how many there was. It seemed about 4 billion at the time, as about 8 years old, of these cattle just running towards us. So we stopped and we said, well, maybe we can reason with them, you know? Maybe, you know, maybe if we pull out something red and do this and do this, they'll like go by. You know, no, we, didn't do, we ran. I remember just running as fast as I could run, and I'm jumping over the cow pies in the whole nine yards, right? And we're leaping. There's an electric fence, and we got to slide or jump over the electric fence because it was on, right? I just remember being terrified. And the reason I ran and didn't play around with that is because I knew I was in danger, I knew that those things were bigger, stronger, faster, and that I, at that age, had no chance against <laughs> some runaway cattle. And the person that toys with sexual sin is showing a complete lack of wisdom. You don't avoid sexual sin by getting close to it as possible. It's like a lion crouching at the door. You don't feed it snacks. You get away. You run. It's, it's arrogant. It's the epitome of arrogance to toy with sin of any kind, in particular sexual sin. And we need to metaphorically run from all sin. But there are times when you have resisted and you put up boundaries and you have refrained, but then you're outright confronted with a temptation that you're not expecting. And the best thing you can do is to run. 
And whether you're dealing with sexual temptation or gossip or stealing or lying or whatever it may be, you have to run. Run to the truth. Run to get help. Run away from sin to help. Run. So you have to fight sin with wisdom and strength that comes from God, which requires that refraining and that running and that resisting that we talked about. Number five, we need to refuse to be short-sighted. Refuse to be short-sighted. Charles Swindoll wrote his book on the life of Joseph. He says Christians can learn, in particular, about temptation, this from Joseph, quote from Charles Swindoll, you must not be confused by the immediate results. He says of Joseph, after doing what was right and resisting evil, he was falsely accused and dumped in prison. Don't be confused by immediate results. And it's true. Look at how this turns out for Joseph. He's lied about. Then Potiphar believes the liar, his wife. And now he's in prison. And it would be easy to start thinking, is this where what doing the right thing is going to get me? Right? Now throw a little pity party for yourself. But God was going to bless him in prison and onward. But in the moment, it seemed like Joseph had the raw deal. I did the right thing and had a wrong thing happen to me. And sometimes you can do the right thing and a bad thing or a wrong thing happen to you. Sometimes you don't sin, but you get sinned against when you refuse to sin. And sometimes you resist temptation and you end up in a trial because you resisted temptation. That's life. Don't be short-sighted. God had bigger plans for Joseph and God has bigger plans for you. God is working to make you like Christ. And resisting temptation and enduring the trials that sometimes come from that are both a part of being formed into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is God's true destiny. We like to throw that word around nowadays for you. is to be like Christ. Don't just look at what sin can immediately give you, but where it's going to ultimately take you. And don't just look at where resisting temptation can immediately take you, but where God, what God is ultimately trying to conform you to. Fight temptation with eternal perspective. Now, let me say this. Remember, Potiphar and the prison guard both experienced blessing in their life because God was blessing him. Joseph. Remember that in the story? Both Potiphar receives, his, his household's blessed because God's blessing Joseph. And then you get over here and he's in prison and, and, and God blesses the prison guard's life. Why? Because he's blessing Joseph. God's blessing was falling on them because it had fallen on Joseph. And we said that was because of what? The messianic line thing. The promise to Abraham, all the nations will be blessed for you. But remember, we said last week, Joseph is pointing us ahead to someone else. All of Israel is pointing us ahead to the ultimate servant of God. Jesus, the ultimate servant of God, the ultimate one on whom God's blessing has fallen. The mediator, the true mediator of the blessing of God. And because of him, you can have God's blessing too. Because God's blessing has fallen on Jesus, God's blessing can fall on you. But it's because Jesus also allowed God's curse, the curse of sin, to fall on him. So the blessing could be a part of that. See, Joseph points us to Jesus. And just as Potiphar and the, the prison guard are blessed because of Joseph, we can be blessed because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. Because apart from Jesus, we're condemned. Because we don't just, we're given over to sin and temptation. Now, Joseph gives us good examples to learn from, but he's not the ultimate example. Ultimately, we know God's the hero of the story because it's him being with Joseph that's enabling Joseph to succeed. And his his story is pointing us ahead to the better example, the one who, by resisting temptation, not only provides an example, but is our Savior, who's able to save us from sin and the consequences of our sin. 
See, even Joseph wasn't without sin. Only Jesus is perfectly righteous, perfectly resisted all temptation. In Jesus, we have one more righteous than both Judah and Joseph. In Jesus, we have one who not only resisted, but can actually empower you and me to resist. In Jesus, we have wisdom from God in the New Testament tells us. So you can't battle temptation. You can't. You can't fight temptation from a place of guilt and shame and judgment and walk in victory. But in Jesus, we get to fight temptation from a place of freedom and forgiveness and victory. And for every believer, God is with you. And we need to fight sin like that is true. Cultivating a heart that treasures God, choosing to see sin as wicked, trusting God to form our character, fighting with strength and wisdom that God gives, and refusing to be short-sighted. So here's the question. Number one, do you have a relationship with Have you trusted the one who can take away your sin? Number two, believer in Christ, are you warring against sin and temptation in your life? Temptation is not the sin. Sin is the sin. We're all tempted. But when we don't fight temptation, when we don't resist temptation, we don't run from temptation, we'll end up losing the battle. 